Good evening. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. That's where we're going to start out this evening. It's our uh, second, second in a three-part series where we're studying this verse, and I um, hope you're gaining as much from it as I am. Sorry about that. I remember back when I was in high school, I should have been old enough to know better than to act like this, but, you know, teenagers, right? Um, I was really mad at Chad. I don't, I don't remember what over. I'm sure that he had done something awful. And, and on our way to school, we had just fought all the way there. I mean, like, it's a, it's a miracle we made it to school. We were about to murder each other, but we made it, and, and I was just fuming all day. And I remembered, I, I wish I could remember what it was so I could share with y'all the reason that I was so furious, because I'm sure that it was a really good reason. But I was just stewing and stewing on it, and I remember lunchtime rolled around, and I thought, I've got an idea. I'm going to really stick it to him. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to let all the air out of his tires. So I just strutted out into the parking lot, and started letting the air out of the tire and just sitting there feeling really proud of myself and about halfway through realized I rode to school with my brother. <laughs> you ever heard the phrase cutting your nose off to spite your face? That's about how that was. Now luckily I stopped soon enough that we were still able to make it home and put air back in the tires. Do you remember that? We can talk about it later. All right. Um, <laughs> Sometimes we do some really silly things trying to get revenge or, or to make things right. You know, we see that in a, in a lot of different contexts, people fighting against something, um, and they fight, um, they fight so hard against it that they don't realize that they're harming themselves in the process. I think we also see um, a little bit of a different take where people become so focused on promoting themselves that they neglect the system that they're in and they end up bringing themselves down. Um, there's a lot of instances of this happening in sports. Most of you probably could look back on a time in, in when you used to play when there was a particular individual player that maybe was pretty talented, but they prioritized their own success over the teams and it led to a negative experience. Now, full disclosure, I had to use ChatGPT to help me generate this sermon illustration because I asked it about a sports. Sports, tell me, tell me about a time in sports when uh, someone prioritized themselves over the rest of the team. And it said that Kobe Bryant, during the 2004 to 2005 NBA season, was accused of doing just this. Said the Los Angeles Lakers had had a lot of internal problems, and Kobe Bryant was really talented. He scored a lot, but, but he was heavily criticized because instead of playing into the team mentality, he had a me mentality. Um, and he dominated the ball, and he took a lot of opportunities away that people feel like if he hadn't done, their team could have done much better. So despite his own talent and his impressive skills, he really ended up harming himself because he prioritized himself over the team. If he had chosen to help those around him, I wonder if things would have turned out different. A lot of people think so. It's often that when we try to be the center of attention, it ends up costing both ourselves and those around us. You know, we have to be careful that we, as individuals, don't harm ourselves um, by prioritizing ourselves too heavy or by fighting in a way that undercuts our own success. Israel, here in Jeremiah chapter 29, was being tempted by false prophets 
to make a move that would ultimately harm them. You see, they had been placed on a team that they didn't like. They were exiled to Babylon, and and I don't really know exactly what it was they were doing. I'm not sure if they were trying to destroy it or maybe simply just failing to, to share and pull their, their um, fair share of the weight. But either way, we see that they weren't operating within God's plans. Last week, we introduced this verse and talked about the importance of this, this foundational principle of understanding ourselves as, as exiles in a foreign nation. And that's certainly what Israel was. But after we, after we determine that we are indeed exiles, then we have to figure out how we're going to live in this foreign nation. And, and God shares some information here. Let's read the full context. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So there's a lot of things happening in this passage. In verse 5, God steps in and, and essentially tells them, I mean, while you're here, I want you to be sure that you live. You need to build houses, and you need to plant gardens, and you're going to eat, and you're going to contribute, and you're going to work. But more than just that, I want you as a nation to grow. And in verse 6, he tells them that, that while you're here, you're going to have children, and you're going to have grandchildren. And I don't want you to decrease. I want you to commit to, to adding to the population. In verse 7, he tells them not to work against the nation that they've been put in. He tells them that, I sent you there. We talked about that last week. I said, he sent you, but you don't belong. He talked about um, praying and working for the city that they're in. And we're going to talk about that next week. And this week, we're looking at how our welfare is in its welfare. But I think it's important also to notice that in verse 8, there was a whole group of people that were telling them otherwise. There were these prophets around them that were sharing certain things with them, and I, I wonder out loud what it was that they were saying. I wonder what the voices are, that are shared with us today say. You know, as they were looking around, I, I wonder if they whispered in their ears, God didn't send you here. These people took you. I wonder if they whispered in their ears, this is an, an evil country and an evil people of idolaters. These are not God's people. You should pray for this place's collapse. I wonder if they whispered in their ears, 
withhold your best efforts. Save those for God, but keep those from these wretched people where you've been placed. I wonder if they whispered in your, their ears that your welfare is its demise. In other words, maybe you should take matters into your own hands. Maybe you should refuse to have children. You should hurt the economy so that hopefully they will give you freedom. You should refuse to integrate or make any permanent plans. Be sure that you make it clear that you don't belong. And God steps in and essentially tells them this, when the time is right, I'm going to act. When the time is right, I will visit. When the time is right, I will fulfill my promise. When the time is right, I am going to bring you back. God said, I have plans, and, and, and I know my plans. And so as we look at this unfolding situation before us, I, I, I believe just like this morning, we have to spend some time sorting out what applies to this specific situation and what has more universal application, what applies to us also today. See, there were some very specific things happening here that we're not dealing with. This was written to um, the Israelites when they were in Babylon, and it applied to a 70-year period between when it was delivered and when they would return. That's just a fact. There were specific false prophets making claims and teaching untruths. Later on, they're actually named Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Masai. We found that in verse 20. They were looking forward to a return to the promised land, and they knew that it was happening soon. And so there's a lot of specifics of the situation that, that were unique to them. But as we step back and, and, and we look at the principles that are driving these statements that God's making, there's a lot of universal truths here. For instance, God is in control, and he has a plan, something that's easy for us to miss. God seeks the welfare of his people. I think there's other times in history where seeking their welfare meant removing blessings from them, but certainly God always seeks the welfare of his people. We also see that God's people never had to defend themselves. In fact, they were very, um, most often unsuited for defense of themselves. It was God who stepped in and did it. And I think that's something that maybe sometimes we, we miss in a passage like this because the people were ready to bow up. The people were ready to do something. The prophets were telling them, it's time for you to take matters into your own hands. But if we think back through the history of the nation of Israel, how often did that work out for them when they took things into their own hands? In fact, we see the times when they experienced success were the times when they very much turned it over to God. We look at the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, or the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7, or the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We look at Jehoshaphat's prayer and the battle that followed where Israel literally didn't fight, and God delivered them into their hands. We look at the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And I could go on and on, but here's the, here's the principle. God's people never did well on their own but they always did well with God. And so here we are experiencing yet another example of God basically stepping in and telling them, right now it's time for you to stand down and let me do my thing. Right now, you just be good people. And when the time is right for my plan, I will act. Now I think that would have been a difficult thing for the Israelites to hear God say, I think sometimes that's a difficult thing for us to hear God say. 
I mean, think about what it would be like to be an Israelite. You have this special identity. You're supposed to be the blessed ones, and yet here you are just submitting to this situation that you find yourself in. You know, when I was young, I used to sit in school. I specifically remember thinking these thoughts in the third grade. I don't know why. I remember the classroom. Maybe that was when, like, the three ninjas came out, and I thought I was a ninja. But I remember sitting there and, and looking at this window in the back of the classroom thinking, if a bad guy ever broke in that window... I think I'd beat him up. And I, and I had this whole thing planned out. And it's probably a weird thing to think. I don't know if other little boys think these things, but, but I did. And I had this whole fight scene planned out in my head, very much like the movies, where I was going to be the, the center of everything, and I was going to kung fu chop my way into you know, saving the whole classroom and being the hero of the day. And, and the truth is, I think that's how we often want to view ourselves in God's plan, as the central character, the one that's going to step in and make the move and make the change and fix everything that's wrong with the world. That's how we view ourselves. We act like, I mean, I say that it's childish, but I think I still feel that way in some regards. I want to be the one. And I think Israel right here looked back over their history and they imagined themselves as the heroes, the ones that were going to step in and, and, and swing things in God's direction. They were going to do big things for God. And God steps in and says, actually, it's not going to be you. Right now, I need you to plant gardens and have children, and seek the welfare of the city. Welfare is how it's translated in the ESV. If you're reading from the New American Standard, it says to seek the prosperity. If you're reading in the NIV, it says to seek the peace and prosperity. So we look at this, and, and the idea translated welfare in the ESV is, is the word shalom. And it's a concept that I think we need to un, unpack a little bit more. It's a, it's a really rich term, and it goes beyond just peace. It goes beyond just welfare. It's a, it's a word that conveys a, a sense of, of completeness or wholeness or well-being or, or harmony. You know, we look, at a, we look at the wholeness and completeness element. Um, it implies a, a state beyond the absence of conflict or turmoil, it implies a holistic well-being in every aspect of life, spiritual, physical, emotional, and social. In other words, to experience shalom was for a human, human people to genuinely flourish, like, like for people to do well. But it was more than, more than just that. There was, there was more than just them physically prospering. I mean, we certainly see the idea of prosperity and flourishing and growth and abundance. But there was also harmony and restoration behind this idea of shalom. It involved looking at God's intent for his creation and, and seeing where everything was in a right relationship with him and one another. And so there was an idea of, of these individuals and communities um, interacting and getting along in a state of peace and mutuality. Within shalom is the idea of, of justice and righteousness. It implies living in accordance with God's moral and ethical standards, treating people justly and advocating for the well-being of others. So an idea of fairness and rightness. All of these are, are things that we want. It, it encompasses the idea of being able to rest. It encompasses all that the Israelite nation had to look forward to as they, they looked to this day when they would be restored to God and God's ultimate purposes. And understanding that the depth of the phrase that's used here 
the depth of God's desire for the well-being of his creation, and then to recognize that God had stepped in and he has said, these may be outsiders, but for them you are to seek shalom. All that you want for yourself, you are to seek for them, because in finding it here, you're going to find it yourself. You see, seeking the welfare of the city is not just the absence of conflict, but it is working for its well-being, for its prosperity, that it would align with these biblical concepts that God has laid forward. Church, everyone and everything should be better when God's people are present. So now we turn towards ourselves, and, and we can recognize several things. I mean, we are not in Babylon, but we are exiles. We talked about that last week. We don't have a 70-year time limit, but we do have a time limit. And it would appear that right now is not the time for us to go home. So there's an element here that I read this, and it's like a reminder, stand down just a little bit. Because right now, it may be that we need to figure out how to seek the shalom of this city and this state and this country and this world that we live in while we wait on God. Now, there's a lot of similar type of actions that are expected of New Testament Christians. Um, first of all, I think that this would involve working hard. Similar to the command Paul gave to the um, church in Thessalonica, we see it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. Paul says this, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed, with you, instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So as New Testament Christians, part of the way that we interact with the world around us is by living quietly, minding our affairs, and putting our notes to the grindstone and working Paul says that's what it's supposed to look like. In fact, most, most people believe here in the church in Thessalonica that, that they kind of thought the end was about to be here, that the exile was about to be done, that they were about to go home. And so truthfully, they were being lazy and they weren't contributing. And Paul says, no, no, that's not how it's going to look. You're going to seek the welfare of this city. You're going to put your nose to the grindstone and you're going to get to work. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, we see this other concept unfolded, this idea of submission and honor given to this government that we don't belong to. Paul writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God is attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor toward to whom honor is owed. And that's the posture we're to take towards this, this government and this society that we're in. We're to fit in and... and and play by the rules and, and work hard and contribute in the ways that we've been asked to. In Titus 3, 1 through 2, we're reminded to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. 
In 1 Peter 2, 13-17, we read, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So these New Testament Christians weren't called to rebel, to cause a stink or stir the pot. They weren't called to fight. They were called to give respect where respect was due, honor where honor was due. And just like these exiles in Babylon, they were called to seek the welfare of the city, and while they sought it, to, to wait. It's particularly notable in light of the terrible Morality accepted by the Roman government and the future persecution that would soon arise uh, amongst those who were reading these very words. And yet Paul wrote them anyway. Finally, I believe we're called to turn it over and trust God. We talked about trusting God quite a bit this morning. In Romans 8.28, and in fact looking at the context around it, I think there's some very similar hopeful elements, a similar promise that we see unfolded in this passage. You see, it starts back in verse 18, and it talks about the, the present sufferings, the sufferings of this present time. And it, and it paints a contrast between what they're experiencing and what they're looking forward to in the future. Very similar to what we see unfold here in Joshua 29. Okay. And, and we read that things maybe weren't that great. It says, we know the whole creation's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And, and he paints this picture, this forward-looking picture of, of what they're hoping for. He talks about the Spirit interceding with groanings too deep for words as they sit there and end their pain and how he searches the heart and knows what should be prayed for. And then we get to verse 28 and it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, we see these same elements here. God has a plan. God has a purpose and while things might not be exactly how you expect them to be in this moment, and while you might look out and, and wish that things were different, God is working things together for your good, because that's his will and desire for his people. You see, it would seem to me that problems arise when we forget that God is in control, and we listen to the voice of these prophets that aren't his, and we try to take matters into our own hands. It seems that problems arise when we forget that we are exiles, and we start putting too much faith in the city that we are in. Church, remember, our salvation will not come from this nation. This nation has been appointed for a season and is subject to God. And when this nation's usefulness to him is complete, it will be done away with. If this passage applies to us at all, I think it would teach us this. We should not seek to undermine this place that we're in before God's timing. And we should not seek to separate from it before God's timing. We can safely assume that our role today is to settle in as exiles and make this a better place for everyone. So practically, what does that mean? 
I think we could look back over the New Testament passages we read just a moment ago, and, and, and we would see that you need to get out there and do your thing. You need to work and create and contribute and exercise your Christian influence in all of those spheres. It's okay for you to want things to be good and to help society to obtain it. Even to help things be good for non-believers, that's, that's a beautiful thing. You should pay your taxes and not make a stink about things and not be an abrasive pot stirrer. You should vo- uh, uh, view yourself as a contributor and a steward and act accordingly. You should appreciate and give thanks for the peace and prosperity that we get to experience during the season of exile. But you should never put your hope in it because that's reserved for our God who is acting. So the big question many of you have is this. Will you go so far as to ask people to vote, and if so, will you tell them how? I'll see everyone looked up real fast, all the elders especially. <laughs> Politics are really big in this country, and I think we need to, I think we need to talk about it just a little bit. Um, it's really big because we get to participate have the opportunity to participate in a novel way and in a way that few in the world are privileged to participate. And so thinking about politics in light of this verse, I think something that's necessary to do. I've spoken with a lot of you on different sides of the coin on this issue. Spoken with some of you who strongly believe one of the ways that you contribute to the welfare of this city is through the political process. And you would even view it as your Christian duty For you, to seek the welfare of the city means working as hard as you possibly can to leverage this unique form of government that we live under in a way that upholds Christian ethics as much as possible. I've spoken to another subset of you who, um, maybe this approach bothers pretty deeply because of your Christian values, you look at the political landscape and say, I can't with a clear conscience be affiliated with any political party. It, it feels like a moral compromise no matter what I do. So it seems to me like the best thing is to turn it over to God and let it be and focus on being what I need to be for the people around me. You might say that it's our Christian duty to live faithful and moral lives despite the collapsing culture around us. Maybe you would say that we can't or shouldn't participate in, govern- in a government that upholds immoral ethics, but instead we should take it in stride. And we should choose to live with Christian ethics despite what the government would tell us. Truthfully, that would have been the approach that Israel was forced to take. That's, that's the, that, they didn't have a choice in the matter. We, we have a choice, um, but that's for sure how they would have been living. Man, I've weighed this one a lot, and to be honest, I can respect both of those views. I could probably argue for both of those views. I could probably preach a sermon for both of those views. Problem is, is I wouldn't really have a super direct biblical teaching for either one of them. I would have to jump through some hoops and, and use some secondary thoughts. And I, as I've examined that and looked at it, I've, I've realized what that means is that I can't preach a sermon on either one of them. So as much as it may disappoint some of you, I do not feel like the church can take a stance on this particular issue of political involvement. I think our role, rather than take a stance on a worldly matter, is to open God's word and tell you what it says. And this text makes very clear, God is in control. God has a plan. 
And our role is to seek the welfare of the community we've been placed within. Now we can put a lot of effort in debating, debating, and in fact, I think we should be constantly challenging one another with what this looks like. I think we should be engaging in healthy and open conversation on the best ways to do this. I think that the route ahead is not always clear on exactly what that's going to look like. We have to use some discretion, and it may end up looking different for different people. And I've got to be honest, I'm okay with that, and I hope you are too. As God's church, our unity that stems from kingdom citizenship first is what is most important. So while the rest of the world may fight about politics, we should be an oasis of unity despite these peripheral differences. Remember this. This is all temporary. This country is temporary. We are exiles, and God will not let his plans be thwarted. Seeking the welfare of the city we are in certainly applies to us today. Let's just be certain that our identity and our citizenship remain elsewhere. The beauty of being part of God's family is that all of a sudden, so many of these peripheral issues don't matter anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't work, we aren't, but we aren't in danger of failure because God is sovereign. If we listen to him, nothing else matters. You know, maybe you are not an exile. Maybe you are a native Maybe this is the country that you live in and you spend your days worrying about society and government and the future. And I can imagine if that's you, it's exhausting and ultimately futile. A beautiful opportunity is before you, however. God set in place a plan. He gave us a way that we could change citizenship. He takes refugees. He has an open border policy and he invites everyone over. The sad truth is that few take him up on it, probably because that requires letting go of our current citizenship. But once we let go of it, then we take hold of something that is infinitely more valuable, something that has eternal value, something that will never leave us behind, a citizenship that will never fail. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And by putting him on in baptism, you can be made part of God's family and God's kingdom and have a secure future in heaven with him. So if this is you, I hope you will do this today. Maybe you aren't convinced and you need to study and we would love to explore that with you more. Or perhaps you are a kingdom citizen but you haven't been living like it. Maybe you need to step up and start living like a Christian so this world would be a better and more peaceful place. Maybe you need to step back and stop listening to the false prophets and put your faith in God who will act on his timeline in his way. If that's you, you're not alone. And God has given us one another so that we can encourage and pray for one another and move forward together in a way that honors him. Let us partner with you in repentance. The invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.